Welcome to Plaything, conversations about games, interactivity, art, and culture. This podcast is recorded live at the USC Game Innovation Lab, which is part of the USC Games program at the University of Southern California. For more information, follow us on Twitter at USC Game Lab or visit our website at gameinnovationlab.com slash playthink. Okay, everyone, welcome to Playthink. My name is Tracy Fullerton. I'm a professor here at USC Games. Uh, and my guest tonight is Paul Slocum, who's an artist, a software developer, a curator, and a musician based in Pasadena, California. He's director of the And Or Gallery, which is a, a new media art gallery that exhibits digital art and develops software for digital art displays and music. He's also performed music and exhibited artwork internationally at numerous venues, including the New Museum of Contemporary Art and uh, Andrea Rosen Gallery in New York, the National Center for the Arts in New Mexico, Readme Software Art Conference in Denmark, the Liverpool Biennial, Museum of Contemporary Art Denver, we can just go on and on here, the Dallas Museum of Art and the Contemporary Arts Museum in Houston. Thanks, Paul, for joining us. No, thank you. Absolutely. So um, to, to start us off, uh, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about your long history um, in, with and or gallery, what it is and how it got started, and some of the artists uh, and types of work that you've shown there over the years. Yeah, um, well, it started originally as a, um, I mean, originally my, my partner at the time, Lauren Gray, had this idea to start a gallery and I was kind of thinking the same thing. and. My original idea was to do a nonprofit that kind of did performances, and then she found us. I'm trying, like, <laughs> it was kind of the sequence of events. Like, she took a class actually is on running a gallery, and then she, <laughs> like found the space and started doing a thing with her friend, and her friend kind of flaked out, and I ended up being in the middle of it. So and this then, was back in. It was t 2005 <laughs> when it was first starting, and the first show was uh, January 2006. Right. Um, and that was in Dallas? Was, that was in Dallas. Yeah. 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 Um, and so uh, I guess I, I, through the internet and through doing shows and performances, I kind of built up a network of artists. Mm -hmm. and so, and, and also I'd been, I was influenced a lot by um, some stuff I'd been to in Europe. Well, you mentioned the Read Me Software Art Festival, so yep. and Denmark was a really big influence on me, seeing how people in Europe were, uh, they were just kind of doing these spaces that were like doing music and art and a lot of different stuff, and I think that, I think they were doing a lot with, in hindsight, with government support. Um, <laughs> Which we don't have so much of, yeah. But they were, I saw this, and I was just kind of influenced by that, I was, I was kind of more of a, a little bit more on the music performance side of things than I was going around doing stuff in Europe. So I was influenced by that. Anyway, so yeah, so I just kind of was like, well. But you wound up showing quite a few uh, artists who would become quite prominent. Who, who, can you sort of give us the uh, some of the folks you showed? Yeah, I mean, Corey Archangel was kind of central. I mean, he was already a little bit big at the time, I mean, relatively. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I showed him, I mean, he was in our second show, and and he's in the current show, and he's kind of been a, a key person throughout the whole thing, and then um, I guess it kind of branches up the network with him, like with, I've shown Jody mm -hmm. early on, Paper Rad, um, 
we did a thing. I mean, uh, <laughs> we we did a thing with um, YTM and D kind of early on, which I, um, I thought was pretty cool. Um, yeah, and you talk a little bit about. I read an article that you wrote uh, about how you were showing that. Um, which is unusual, um, how you actually grab the pages um, from some of the websites um, and uh, found a way to, to display them. Because um, it, kind of, it was unusual at the time to be showing websites, uh, yeah. interactive art at all, but websites in particular uh, in a gallery. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a, a meme show, but uh, you know, white, the format of YGMD kind of involves the entire HTML format. so. Um, so yeah, we we set up like rows of computers to, to show those. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, um, I kind of tapped into that network. I mean, was, and then we also like early on, I was also showing a mix of, of like I showed Brian Bellat early on. He's like kind of uh, got, gotten bigger now, but yeah. he, he does more collagey stuff. And which um, anyway, yeah. So so yeah, it just kind of got going and got rolling, and we ended up showing some kind of cool stuff just. This network I have. Yeah, and and you know, um, you told me when we spoke at the gallery that you actually wound up representing um, uh, some artists. Uh, I, either that or was in the article. I can't remember. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we started. I mean, it was run kind of like a regular gallery as much as possible. Um, and uh, yeah, we wrote, and uh, P Petra Courtwright's another one, and we I represented her later on. I was like, one of the, I was the first gallery to sell her work and do it. Uh, like a two-person show, a group show. Which is, you know, I mean, it's really cutting edge, this idea of representing digital media artists and internet artists, and, you know, also we're going to talk a little bit more tonight about game art and game artists, mm -hmm. right? It's a, uh, it's not a natural thing uh, that a gallery would represent a, a designer, an artist who worked in games, for right. example. Yeah. I mean, today it's becoming more normal, but yeah. Yeah, but only in the very smallest way, right? right, right. Yeah, <laughs> there are true. some. There are obviously some games that have been collected by museums, and mm -hmm. and there are a couple. There are some people who are represented, but it's it's still fairly unusual, right? right. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. So currently, speaking of of game art, you have a show up and running, which which I actually got a chance to go see, and for everyone here. Um, uh, if you haven't made time to go out and see this show, you really should. Um, it's, a, it's a great collection of foundational work um, uh, in games and their relationship to art. Um, and so I, I love it. it it's called uh, Video Game Art 1970 uh, to 2005. 1970, I think, predates a lot of you folks. Um, so if you think about, wow, were they making uh, video game art way back then? Um, and it goes up to, to 2005. So you can talk a little bit about what's in the show. Give us a little overview about what's in the show and, and why you put, wanted to put together this, this group of games. Um, yeah, um, well, this is, a, this is a show that I've, I mean, it's a, something I've been interested in for a long time. Um, and it, this is kind of the third show that I've done like this. It's sort of a, um, yeah, the first two were curated with my buddy Marcin Ramaki, and the first was, um, at Art Art House in Austin, and the second was at Postmasters in New York. Um, the first was in 2007 or 8, and the second Pretty was early in on. 2011 or 12. Um, and there's a lot of over like I think the only overlapping piece is the Mike builds a shelter piece, mm -hmm. um, this 1983 arcade game that an artist artist Michael Smith made um, that we restored for the first show. But um, yeah, like it's kind of a show that, um, I mean, 
1970 is a little bit of a stretch because it, it's really it's 1970 only because of Conway's Game of Life. Right. Most of the stuff starts kind of in the 80s. Yeah. Um, but to me, Conway's Game of Life is kind of the beginning of it. I mean, to me, that's the earliest. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's something else, but there's nothing I can think of that really quantifies that whole thing so well. The sort of thing where it's sort of like, is this this is this like? It, it's sort of this line between a game and the type of piece you'd see, like, at, say, Ars Electronica or something like that, and just an interactive piece or even a web piece. Like, an interactive, like, where is, what's the difference between a game and just, like, where, and if you change the game and remove goals and certain thing, aspects of it, it, it stops like, being game like. Like, where is, the, yeah. so anyway, the show is kind of about that line. Um, it includes Conway's Game of Life which is, um, you guys are probably familiar with that, but it's sort of like a super minimalist Minecraft in a way. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's like a 2D ultra minimalist Minecraft with the most minimal rules and activity you can possibly imagine. Uh, uh, and then I think also include a, a, game, a similar uh, game sort of based on cellular automata um, called Worms. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, it's a beautiful game. Yeah, it's just a pretty cool game, which I actually had when I was a kid. Um, and it's it's one of Ele- Electronic Arts' uh, inaugural releases from 1983, 82 or 83. Um, and it's, a, it's similar to Conway's Game of Life, but they slightly gamified it. Exactly. So, and, and it also has this like sound element that's really nice. Yeah, I mean, when I played it, I thought how modern it was. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, I mean, I remember it at the time... Uh, but now going back and you see how uh, sort of what a milestone it really was in yeah. terms of sort of visual art and games, right? Um, and you're right; it does have this really strong relationship to Conway's Game of Life. Um, but then it has that that little bit of gameplay, um, and it's actually quite challenging. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's actually, uh, there's a, there's 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 so much randomness in it. Um, when you you know sort of move that you're not entirely sure what's going to happen, mm-hmm. but um, but there's enough game you know challenge to it that uh, you don't feel well, like you're just dropping things in like in Conway's game of life you just drop stuff in and you see what happens. Right. It's more of a toy. Well, you can build structures and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. you could gamify. I was just thinking that you could kind of gamify Conway's Game of Life in certain ways if you wanted. To. I mean, that would be kind of strange, but it, it would. It will might turn out a lot like Worms, actually. I mean, ultimately, <laughs> his goal was to make something that kind of. I mean, what, what, how did he? I'm trying to think how he put it. I mean, it's kind of like he tried to make something that would keep changing for a long time, and that it would, would keep, generate sort of. Life-like um, functions, like right? If you, so like I think the little that, gliders who sort of self, um, yeah. mo- you know, have motive power. It's like right? a certain level of complexity based on. Like I mean, I think if you change the variables of his rules a little bit, it probably things just collapse yes. much sooner and easier. And yeah. you kind of struck this balance with it. But anyway, um, yeah. So, so yeah. So we have those. I'm trying to think. Let's. Um, that's sort of one category, I it's guess. The sort of the abstract, um, uh, very systemic visual uh, experiences. Actually, when we were uh, there, um, 
you were you had some really interesting representations that you had made of Conway's Game of Life. Yeah, I've, Can you I've describe those a little bit. Yeah, I've worked with Conway's Game of Life for um, the last um, some odd years. Um, I wrote a script that takes a pro like a, a progression of Conway's Game of Life and turns it into. Um, it takes the time that it's basically it's basically turns the space time into a three D object. It goes over time. It stacks the layers into mm -hmm. a just a singular object that you can see the like a progression of time. So and then I make prints of them. They were beautiful prints. Oh, <laughs> yeah, uh, um, I was really struck by them because that is something about the. The way that the game plays out, the, or the the system plays out, um, it, it 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 does become about the moment, right? Uh -huh. And when and with these three D layered prints, it it was about the history. It was about this sort of um, almost like a, a a motion blur, you know, mm -hmm. of of the time of of passing. Uh, so you could rep, you could sort of uh, appreciate where the system had been and where it was going. Yeah, I kind of, I actually got, I was trained, I had this, I was, I don't know how I got, a long time ago, I got on this idea of trying to visualize, like, uh, 4D space, like, visualize, and there's this, um, there's a science fiction author who describes it as, like, when we're born, it's like this vine, kind of, well, uh, I'm not going to describe it a lot. <laughs> there's a children's book that talks about it that way. Um, a Wrinkle in Time. Oh, yes, that's interesting. Yes, that's one of the first times I ever contemplated it as a kid. Oh, uh, yeah, that's the, really great, yeah. The little kid Charles. Yes. The, who's the kids? The Charles? The, yeah, Charles, Charles Wallace. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the first one to ever introduce me to that, that idea. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, well, I, I won't go off into it because I'll butcher it. But it, um, <laughs> yeah, I was trying to visualize, and then I realized, oh, I could just take a 2D space and then visual, like turn that into an object and it kind of it, it kind of gives you a sense of it like yes. you can get, um, it's like a gesture at it yeah, yeah. Um, so that's kind of and you can do you could I've thought about doing it with other because you can do it with other games I've thought about doing it with like um, I don't know it's a project that's kind of on my to-do list yeah. of doing it with like you could do it with Mario Brothers or it would be I thought I can't think of what games I thought well, were best now. You should talk with Todd, who's done quite a lot of bit of work with the uh, the game of life. Todd Fermanski's here oh, cool. um, in, hey. in the room, and uh, um, had built actually a VR version um, of of game of life. So. I, I put my 3D structures <laughs> in VR. I tried that too. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little trippy. To be the problem I had was the structures have so many surfaces in them that it. it it really taxes. It, you but can't render it in very. It, it taxes your graphics card too hard. I couldn't get a good frame rate. Yeah. Well, maybe <laughs> maybe you guys could, could collaborate on yeah. that. Um, and there was a just before we move off of, of Game of Life because I want to talk about a lot of the other uh, projects that are in the show. Yeah. Um, uh, you also had um, uh, this really hard to acquire piece, the Video Life, um, which is the Atari. Um, 2600 version of Game of Life, right? And and as I understand, only 20 cartridges were ever made, and it was available only through special mail order. And I, actually, I looked it up, and on its Wikipedia page, they report that cartridges sold for as much as $3,000 at the time, which today would be about $9,000. So 
Um, just out of curiosity, how did you acquire this this really special artifact of this? It's a replica. <laughs> it's a replica. Okay. Um, so so what are you were mentioning to me? Some constraints, though. Even the replica, though, is valuable in a way because you know you have to uh, recreate it again, right? Yeah, we did have to get it working. Yeah, we. I mean, I could, I probably could have borrowed original from from my collector, but I, I just kind of didn't want to deal with the liability. Yeah. Well, I, that's what you and I were talking about, is that you have it as one of the first pieces you see when you walk into the show, and um, uh, there's a, a problem, obviously, yeah. where people could just take the cartridge. You know, probably not many people are going to know, but I just couldn't, I mean, it would be, uh, it was like with the arcade games and that, it would like go, be over my insurance limit, actually, and I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so came and took it. Um, but can you can you talk? You you were talking to me about the control system a little bit, and you know it's it wasn't really a, what we call released commercially so much. I mean. Yeah, I mean that's true. Yeah, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't. On, yeah, you, it was. You had to get the super rare cartridge, and then through that you could mail order this one. So yeah, it was. And then there was the different controller. Right? What did you I use? just rigged that up. You just rigged that up? Oh, I mean, okay. normally you use a second joystick with, you just hit the button, but I, I was trying to make it simpler so people could just sit down and kind of mess with it. I see, okay. But I mean, the, you know, Conway's Game of Life, it's not like there's an original version that you can just show from 1970. It was, just, it was. I mean, maybe he wrote. He probably wrote some code. Well, he, I mean, it was you could. He did it on the floor. Yeah, it was more of a. I mean, he, he wrote an article. I think yes. and it was and published. Then other and, people turned it into computer yeah. uh, simulations. So I had to find. I mean, ori originally I was thinking I would have some kind of touchscreen interactive thing, but then I remembered this version, and I thought oh, this is a great way to show it. And it's a nice entry point into the show to take something that. In a way, predates you know co uh, the 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 computer game industry, and then show it on one of the earliest you know, successful co consoles uh, right. of the game industry. So it's a nice way to sort of enter the show, which yeah. you have it in the the entryway. Um, but so uh, I'd love to talk about some of the other games in there because there's there's some really fascinating artifacts, um, and one of them, one of the highlights for me, anyways, was the original Tetris pro prototype that's running in Russian on an Electronica 60 mini computer. Um, and that was really something to experience for me. Um, it, it's, you know, because we're all familiar with the sort of commercial version with just like catchy music and Cold War graphics and the kind of packaged up version of it. Uh, but this is very different. Um, I mean, the gameplay is the same, but the packaging is gone, right? So that you know, uh, can you can you talk a little bit about this piece and and give us some back some background on it? You were you were telling me a little bit about um, the story of, of Tetris. Yeah, um, I mean, the Tetris, including Tetris, is. I mean, I'm not totally sure how it fits into the show entirely, but I, I kind of just wanted As to an see artwork, it. Right? It wasn't actually even at the opening because it was difficult to get set up and working. I mean, I bought a. It's a, it's running on a Raspberry Pi that's emulating. Um, oh, it's emulating. Okay. Yeah, it's emulating the. Um, with it's a, the the Electronica 60 is a PDP 11 clone. Okay. Um, and so it's emulating that, but it, it is it's running over a serial port on a onto a real. Uh, like a serial terminal. Okay. Um, but yeah, um, the, uh, sorry, I'm blanking on his name. Alexei Pagina? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, he was an artificial intelligence researcher who wrote 
games to test hardware, and um, this is that was one of the games he wrote, and so it, it became popular and kind of was, I mean, it, there's not uh, maybe there's some full history of it, but it seems like it kind of was pirated basically. I mean, it was people somebody ported it to DOS, and then it was kind of dubiously licensed, and then, and he gave the intellectual property to the Soviet Union for yes. ten years. Um, so he didn't start making any. I mean, Western companies were just making money off of this game left and right. Um, well, and also I guess Japanese companies um, were making money. Because well, it of was money. a huge, huge. Yeah, it was a huge Nintendo hit, yeah. and it was also a big arcade game too. Yeah. Um, and so he in the mid '90s he finally formed a company that uh, I think he finally started making money off of it, but. Um, I mean, it, it is the best. It's the, I think it's the best-selling game of all time. Is what I wouldn't be surprised. It's listed the as the as the best-selling game of all time. Yeah. Um, it's partly because it. I mean, it was on so many. It's it's just endured, and it's on it's on mobile. I think mobile is part of the reason it's it's rocketed so much in sales. But yeah, and it was everywhere. I yeah. mean, It might have been best-selling for lots of people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the answer to yeah. wasn't necessarily best-selling for Alexi. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because it's such a it's a it's such a simple game. It's a really simple idea, but it's just this. this it's it's kind of strange. It's really strange to see the. I I wanted to just see the original. It's just it's done in text with. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Characters. This is just these little brackets, and and you know it's very very simplistic. And then of course the whole interface is in Russian. Um, so it, you, when you're playing it, you just have this. I don't know this strange sense, um, of, of looking into the past because uh, even the, the modern versions are so. Uh, you know, packaged. They're just so familiar, um, and to and to look at what he was looking at when he was prototyping it and deciding how many blocks there would be, right? And you just look at that rough um, ASCII text, and it, it just, in a way, to me, it just felt like it opened up a door to the to the past of, of games in, yeah. in a really special way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that we don't get when we play the modern versions. Yeah, it plays it plays really really well. So surprisingly, over a terminal like that. I mean, it's it's sending um, terminal commands to reposition the cursor, and it just it's redrawing different parts of the screen all the time to do it. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't scan the whole thing. It just draws what it needs to. It's written. I mean, it's, and it runs really well. The it's, only difference is it doesn't show you the. Uh, next character. That's what I was going to say. It didn't, it didn't have the preview. That's the only yeah. like difference in that. Which, as it turns out, is a really interesting um, uh, sort of dramatic uh, addition to the game, right? Yeah. So when you know it's going to, when you, it, it adds a lot more strategy. Yeah, it's, it was, yeah, it's a really that. good addition to add. Really it still addition. plays really well. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so um, uh, let's jump, speaking of, of opening up the past a little bit. Uh, let's jump to a piece that's it's actually pretty famous on the internet, right? Um, it's maybe one of the better uh, known unreleased games in, in video game history. Um, I want to talk about uh, Desert Bus. Um, and uh, for, for those uh, who aren't uh, familiar with, with the piece, um, uh, it's basically a bus driving simulator. <laughs> <laughs> right and and made by Penn and Teller, uh -huh. um, and you want to tell us a little bit about it and and uh, it's you know sort of why it's it's in the show. Yeah, it's I mean, yeah, it, it's a game from that was made in 1995 for the Sega CD system, and it was it was never released. It was intended to be released um, commercially, and it's it's part of a collection of games called Penn and Teller Smoke and Mirrors. 
but Desert Bus has become the most famous one. I think that I haven't had I didn't mean to go through all the games, but I haven't had a chance yet. But I, my understanding is they're all joke games or sort of magic tricks built into a game, mm-hmm. except for one, which is like a platformer. And it's a real game, but the one. Desert Bus is one of the joke games on there, and it's it's the most famous one. It's, I mean, it's kind of the best of all of them. Um, but it's it's just it's it's um, you drive a bus from Tucson to Las Vegas, and the bus Non-stop. Can, the bus can only go forty five miles per hour, and it's in real time, so it right. takes eight hours in real time. Um, and there's just no literally keep going forward. There's not really any scenery or turns or obstacles or traffic, but <laughs> the bus pulls to the right a little bit, so you constantly have to maintain it. And the the button, the start button that normally paused, only operates the horn, so you can't pause. <laughs> you can't pause. You have to just keep driving. Um, Sometimes a, the major occurrence on the trip is that a bug can hit your window. Yeah, a, a bug hits the window five hours. And it's fascinating. <laughs> You're like, oh my god. But it's five hours into the trip that the bug hits your window, and right. then when you get there. After eight hours of driving, when you get there, you're given the option to drive back, and you get one point when you arrive. You get you get a point for driving back, and it takes another eight hours. And if you drive back, the sun slowly sets. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> and I mean, when I heard about this, I mean, I think it was unveiled. Somebody found it in the mid 2000s, I think. Or when I heard about it, I was like, I got to be in one of these shows because it fits with the other pieces that we'll probably talk we'll talk about in a minute. But um, I mean, it's a lot like. I mean, it's it's basically like work that was being made by artists in, in, in the nineties. It's and a high concept piece. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of insane. It's also it's really like wonderfully illustrated as well. Yeah. It like looks like a really kind of awesomely made. Um, it looks like a commercial Sega game CD of the time, right? You know, kind that's of the like thing. the graphics. Like it's it's really well illustrated. Like when you when you like run off the road for too long, this this tow truck comes and tows you back to. Two song you in real start time. over again. So however long you drove, it takes that long to drive you back. But it doesn't show the tow truck. You it just it's just, it after a while you see the you just see the light illustrated and the the, the like tow truck's light going yeah. and then you hear the sound and then the, you see that the bus has been lifted up and, and then it starts towing you back. It's just like the way it's it's really like wonderfully done. It it is and what's <laughs> what's really you know strange to me is that. Um, in a way, it, it, it's the predecessor of walking simulators, right? I mean, it has this um, ambivalence about, um, you know, gameplay. It's sort of, it's got that pull to the right, which keeps you on point, and you have to, it's sort of the challenge. You think it's going to be boring. And then I sat down to play, and, and we were talking while I was playing, and I didn't want to stop. Like, I, as, as a game player, I didn't want to let go of that button that was driving the bus forward. I, I kept thinking, well, any minute now it's gonna, something's going to happen and I'll feel like stopping. But, but I didn't. I just kept correcting and course correcting and course correcting and I thought, oh my god, I'm going to be here for eight hours. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's actually more compelling than you know it's going to be. Right, you yeah. know, when you describe it, it's like, okay, I'll never play that. But then it's actually weirdly hypnotic in the same way that driving a desert road right. is, is hypnotic. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, 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 I really love that one. Um, so, um, 
So let's talk about some other uh, some of these other pieces, though. You um, you actually mentioned that you'd uh, shown Jody really early on um, before this show. I think you even did a whole show. Yeah, they were yeah. the show before this. That's yeah. Right. Um, um, and so um, so so Jody is part of a genre of game art that um, that that involves sort of hacking the code for commercial PC um, games and, and changing the game experience. Um, so uh, and and you have actually a couple of pieces. Some by Jody and 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 some by others, where that's kind of the 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 idea, the conceptual idea um, behind the art is really going into something commercial, taking things out, stripping things out. Can you talk a little bit about that that yeah. you know, sort of idea? I mean, um, an interesting thing when you're like an artist trying to do something with games is that it, making games is like insanely expensive. So like. <laughs> If you want to do certain things, like hacking games is kind of your only option, really. Because you, I mean, you know, like if you wanted to create like a Grand Theft Auto Five like type, unit, I mean, like this the game would cost like you know like two hundred million dollars. I mean, it's probably a lot of that's marketing, I'm sure, but still, like it's, it's a lot of money. It's like a lot of people like designing assets for like. Many hours. Which is why we see sort of indie art games going down an entirely different, you know, aesthetic path. Yeah, I mean, right? it's like the, partly the reason the 8-bit graphics <laughs> are popular is not just the aesthetic, it's partly because it's more practical. Yes. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, I, I mean, I think there's a variety of reasons to do it, but yeah, the, I mean, J Jody, I mean, the piece we're showing is a hack of Quake, and they did, um, it's, it's like this, well, they put, they basically put um, little checkerboard patterns on, on every surface so that so and it's it basically when it renders it just renders kind of everything to more A patterns because it's trying like it, it doesn't have any aliasing so it just kind of everything becomes this crazy pattern. It's so it becomes crazy. kind of just like this visualizer. Um, and they did a bunch of series of minimalist hacks like this. There's like ones of Doom, um, Quake, um, there's like a, a old Spectrum game that they did. And most of their early work is like that, but the, I really love this one. That, that's kind of this the, the checker, the tiny checkerboard one. That it, it calls attention to process, like uh -huh. the process of games, right? The sort of not only the processing power, but just like what what is this artifact that we're looking at? Yeah. It you know by changing just the surfaces of it, you actually begin to see it better in a way. And part of what's great about the game is that the sound is unmodified, so it's just like. Ugh, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, yes. It's just this like abstraction. It gives you some context against all that abstraction. Yeah, it really. Yeah. I mean, that's part of what's great about that piece is like the, the, the sound with it. I mean, it, it looks like something you'd see. It just looks like a visualizer you'd see from some minimalist like electronic band, like li like a live performance or something. Like it. it just kind of becomes a visualizer. And then we showed another piece by a concept like that, and that's from. Not, they they worked on those in like ninety eight ninety nine. Mm -hmm. I mean I think those that piece is technically tied from two thousand, but the, the, they were working on a bunch of series of those from around that time. And then we showed another piece from two thousand by um, Jean Leandre, um, and he hacked for this one. He hacked um, Revolt. It's like a is this that driving one that I played. Yeah, yeah. So Revolt you're was driving a, in like 
nothingness. It's like an RC car <laughs> racing game from like yeah. the 90s, really late 90s. And so he's hacked it. So it's similar to Jody where it just becomes this crazy abstraction that's kind of playing with the engine. Some of the levels are sort of playable, but it's not really that playable. It's kind of just more like becomes sort you, of a you weird You can't tell activity. what is up and what is down. And you're just, you still, you quote unquote, know how to drive, but it's not respecting, but the visuals are not respecting your understanding of what driving is anymore. So, yeah. uh, and so it just becomes wildly abstract. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It has good sound to you. It like has it, good sound, yes. Um, and yeah, so that's it, like Jody's what you usually see with that stuff. But, yeah. Um, I thought that was cool to kind of see a, a contemporary of Jody who's doing something similar with who's not Jody. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and then we show we show uh, we have a super. Uh, a Cory Archangel piece that's also a, a hack. It's a, and he, he's pro, you know, the Super Mario Clouds is probably the most well known. Yes. But we should, I'm showing a one that's a little bit later that's a sort of a variation on that. It's this MiG 29 game, and he has two uh, hacks of it. One is actually clouds that are similar to Super Mario Clouds, and another one's this big plane. Um, so it's just another, I, I wanted to show one that wasn't that Super wasn't Mario Clouds. As, as overseen. And perhaps. then we showed it alongside these modifications to Super Mario Brothers by um, this artist, Mifonwe Ashmore, which was actually done two years before Super Mario Clouds. Um, yeah, when I walked in, I thought that it was going to be Super Mario Clouds. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, for those who haven't played, it's basically... Um, uh, I mean, Super Mario Clouds is essentially just taking everything out of the game. Yeah, so. <laughs> he took everything out of the game but the clouds. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how he often described it. But, but finally, Ashmore took, um, she took all the, everything out of the levels. Yes. <laughs> like, so she, did, she didn't remove the ground or the Mario or the clouds, but... But you see, so you can still walk around, but there's nothing else there. So you, all you can do is walk around until the time runs out. Um, which is again another reference to sort of more modern uh, art games, which are which take a lot of conflict out and become more experiential, mm -hmm. right? So right. Uh, I, I find a lot of these almost sort of prescient of the ideas that we're seeing um, in modern games. Yeah, yeah. And I cut I cut it off partly in 2005 just to avoid. <laughs> having to like well there that's when the explosion happened yeah it right? would just be such a more complicated show to like i don't know it would just open it up to a whole different thing that would make the show kind of difficult to deal with and yeah. so i just thought that's a good point to cut it off and it's kind of encapsulates in this era right before it kind of expands it, it's it's before the real democratization of the tool sets it's before people like jason Rohr start releasing games yeah or and we, Genova we had jason or, Rohr yeah, in exactly. one of our shows yeah um which which and yeah that one went a little more in that direction but mm -hmm. yeah this one we cut it off there. but a lot of, i mean what you do by cutting it out on that date is you actually put a lens on the work that these people were doing before there were uh, uh, before there was a large community around sort of experimental and art games, um, and before the tools were readily available to a lot of different people. So you're sort of, you know, putting a lens on people who were very prescient, people who were thinking way ahead in, in, in a lot of ways. In fact, one of the ones I want to talk about, which um, is almost unplayable, but I really enjoyed it anyways, um, is, is um, kind of um, predictive of the entire genre of, um, of uh, serious games. So that that's the Mike Builds a Shelter arcade game. So there's a whole series of arcade games and one of them is this 
um, this game um, where you're basically trying to build a fallout shelter before the bomb goes off so that you can survive uh, you know the nuclear holocaust right when I played it <laughs> it's so hard uh, I couldn't it, it, the, the, just the way it's designed it's like you almost can't even get the character up the staircase it's pretty much all you have to do is go up and down the staircase um, but it's designed to make it super super hard to do that one task so yeah. you're almost invariably going to lose you it, yeah you well it's actually I mean it's made excessively slow. Like, I mean, they were, they were, it's part of the entire installation that they made of this. It was based on this government-issued pamphlet that <laughs> explained how to make this fallout shelter in your basement that doubles as a snack bar. <laughs> um, and it's like when the bomb alarm goes off, you're supposed to, like, pull this thing down and then you have to put these cinder blocks in to fill in that, like, the, the pass-through area where this, you know, like, the part where you sit at the bar. So you fill that in, and then go in there, and you have your rations inside, and you wait out the fallout, I guess. Um, I so couldn't make it past the first step. <laughs> <laughs> so they in the in the sh this is so this game is from 1983, and they built like they built they built the fallout shelter from the pamphlet and all these. It was this whole show, and he later he did a video that went with it too, and it showed it. Um, it showed it in New York, and it showed it in the New Museum um, in the 80s, and uh, so I restored the game. In like 2007, we recovered the data and uh, restored it. But built the whole cabinet, mm -hmm. and you had to get a new programmer, someone to reprogram, right? I think you told well, me, or was it? Was that you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So well, we didn't reprogram it. I made, but I, I mean, we made, I made a few changes. I like we talked about a young programmer, not you, but oh, someone else. Yeah, when they originally made it, they they they, they did. It was written by a guy, like a high school. A high school. That's, that's what right. we're talking. Yeah. In okay. 1983. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, which is kind of uh, interesting that this is, you know, who can do this for us right. at the time is probably a young person who's just fiddling around with the tools, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But it's, you know, nowadays, obviously, there's a whole, you know, genre of games, serious games, that, where we use games to talk about, you know, topical affairs and, and current issues and things like that. And uh, here we are, in, you know, 1983, and, and, and you see this already. You see it emerging al already. Yeah, I mean, right. it was really, yeah, it was kind of, it's the, it's the earliest attempt I know of to make sort of this kind of bad game on purpose type thing. <laughs> yeah, know. yeah, interesting, um, bad. Because, you know, at the, I'm, I'm sure, I can't remember exactly the year, but it's going to be around the same time as uh, Balance of Power by Chris Crawford, which is also about the Cold War. Um, oh, where I you, don't, I don't um, know that. It's it's a um, PC Mac game, and you play as a world leader on either the U.S. side or uh -huh. or the Soviet Union side, and you're trying to keep the world from exploding into nuclear war um, through various. It's it's a simulation game. Um, it's not supposed to be a bad game like this one is. It's it's a really difficult right. simulation yeah, game, yeah. and almost invariably you would fail. At least I did. I failed and failed and failed and failed. Um, but it was one of the first games that I ever remembered that was about something. It was mm. about this idea that we were on the verge of, of nuclear war. Right. And it's, 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 it's interesting that it was a similar topic. Obviously, that was a very, very prevalent worry. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, there's, there's several games. I've been kind of fascinated by games. Like, like there's um, Raid Over Moscow and Commun I was just, I just found out that Commun there's this game, Communist Meetings from Space, for the, for the Atari 2600. I found out 
there was this this thread I I never heard of this. They removed the word communist from the the game in Europe, but they didn't change the packaging, so it still has this, still has this ridiculous illustration. But then they actually just removed it from the so title. It's like X from outer space. I mean, they don't. They, it just it, yeah. It's just it's just mutants from outer <laughs> mutants. space. Mutants. Oh, yeah. okay. Mutants. <laughs> <laughs> just mutants. They're not communist mutants. They're, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of weird. I'm wondering how that decision happened. That they didn't actually change the pack. I guess maybe the cost of reading the illustrations or something was more. I don't know. Nice. Um, so those were some of my favorites. Um, what are some of your favorites that I didn't that I didn't bring up? Oh, let's see. Um, I think we covered. Did we cover? I think we covered everything, didn't we? Well, we didn't talk about the we rest of the, the arcade, arcade games. games. Yeah, and I okay. know there were some that you really um, that you got well from Van Burnham, right? Um, yeah, I mean the arcade games were. I mean, I, they're sort of context for the show in a way. I mean, they're not. They don't entirely fit perfectly to the show, but, we, but like, I mean, they kind of do in a way. But they're like they were. They don't fit squarely into the show. I think. I think they're they're really. I mean. Okay, so like, I mean, the idea was that we were gonna have Mike build a shelter, and then I found out I could get these. Like, this woman has this amazing collection of Van Burnham, who wrote Supercade. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. She has a like very large collection of games from nineteen eighty or nineteen, generally nineteen seventy five to nineteen eighty five. And so I really, I guess, when I saw her collection, what struck me was there were these games that I've never seen before, or heard of at all. Um, there was one that was, um, you said it was, you, you called it the first indie, like independent. I mean, I was kind of comparing that. I mean, it's a little bit of a stretch, I think, to compare it to indie games. I mean, they're, little, I mean, they're kind of unsuccessful games <laughs> in a way. They're kind of made by companies that were kind of, I mean, it's different from indie game has this sort of like, like for lack of a better word, artisanal element to it that yes. I think they didn't quite have, but. I mean, one of the okay. Well, I mean, I, I like I made a list of all the ones I'd never heard of before. And that's kind of how I carried it. I ended up choosing ones that were basically from the same era as um, Mike Builds a Shelter. And they're Got all, it. They're, so they're contemporary. I think they're all yeah. eighty-one through eighty-three. Okay. Um, but so I'll just go through them. I mean, we, we I got Native Defense, which is this kind of goofy game made by a company in I think in Southern California called Pacific Novelty. And they put out these games that had a tape deck and the, like they had a car stereo tape deck on the back of them, with a cassette on auto reverse so that they could play audio loops on the games. Um, Native Defense has, as you play, it has this radio chat. It's like it's a war. It's a. I think it's a World so you're War. You're hearing three game. a radio show. Yeah. Well, it's it's radio chatter. It's uh -huh. like. You know, it's like it's like you're listening to the you're listening to the CB channel. Oh, oh, oh okay, okay, um, got it. So it's like you know, it's like them talking. It's it's kind of airplane movie esque, like kind of comedy, sort of or sort of Hogan's Heroes maybe kind of like dated comedy routine. Anyway, I was partly just curious to kind of play it and have this experience of hearing this thing that they like. I mean, it's kind of, I was. I think it's funny they were out of script and like did all those things, so it's kind of interesting. And it's to weird to just put it in the uh, like a tape deck in the back of the arcade. Uh, I mean, usually, you know, one of the reasons that the, this meme of arcade sounds is like beep beep, beep yeah. is because of the limited technology for making sounds. I mean, digital time. sound came along shortly after that, but yeah. still, there was not. I don't think there was anything that. Yeah. I mean, there were a few games, I guess, that had a little bit of speech or something, but for the most part, there was nothing like that. It was like a long thing of. I mean, it's. 
think it's about eight minutes of, of, of chatter. Tapes. Yeah, it's interesting. About eight minutes. And there was one you showed me that was really just a skin. Um, yeah, I mean that one. That one kind of fits into the show the most. I think it's there's this game called the Glob. Um, I wish I had pictures of it. Um, well, it's there are some on the website, so people yeah. can, can go, and I encourage everybody to go to the show. So yeah. yeah. Oh, and it's the, still open, right? The show is listed as ending at the end of the week, but I'm going to extend it another week. So okay. It'll be up so through the first. So go go before it closes. Um, but anyway, the glob is it's it only ever existed as a um, conversion kit for Pac-Man. Um, so it's it's like it's a set of ROMs, I think. It's and it's uh, panels to replace the artwork. <laughs> it has instructions on how to paint it, which is like kind of vague. It's kind of like paint it like a kind of a battery. <laughs> I don't know. It's like anyway. So you're supposed to like just to destroy one of the most um, successful games of all time and replace it with um, with. Uh, yeah, I mean, apparently it's notorious for a way to as being a way to make your Pac-Man machine make less money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like this obscure game nobody's heard of, and they, they illustrate. I mean, I, partly I love it. I mean, that's interesting in itself, but also the illustrations in our work are really kind of hilarious and strange. They yeah. almost look like rubber crumb or something like that. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty good game. Also, I, I wanted games that were actually kind of fun because, like, the show. Is all stuff that's kind of intentionally not fun, um, in a way. So it actually makes the show kind of nice because, like, right in the middle of it, we have these four so, like kind of really striking arcade playable. games that yeah. are, you can actually play. And, yeah. Like, are, you know, yeah. And then we have a game. We have a vector early, this rare early vector color, like color vector arcade game called Boxing Bugs. It's sort of like this bizarre version of Axe where you're a giant fist that punches bugs. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then we have um, Slither, which is a centipede ripoff. Yeah. Um, that's actually pretty good. I like played a, that one. It's that a trackball game, and yeah. it's it's a lot like centipede, but you can shoot up and down, and it, you can move all over the level. Oh right, that's what I. It was kind of freaky because uh, having played centipede so much, I kept hanging near the bottom of the screen. Yeah, yeah. And later. there's this. You're sort of coded yeah. in your brain that you think you have to stay near the bottom of the screen, and then with this game, you 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 don't have to, but it's so much like it that it's weird that you you, you, you can't make yourself. Um, but you know, one thing I should say is that you know we're talking about these abstractly. We're not showing pictures of them. Um, they really are worth playing, even if some of them are sort of you know like Desert Bus or whatever meant to be not very playable. And they actually do when you play them reveal a really. Uh, they reveal very different experiences that are unexpected. So I, I yeah. just encourage, um, you know, going out and playing them. Yeah, I mean, I had to watch. I mean, you can easily watch a video of Desert Bus. But it, 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 it's not I, the same. I kind of wanted to see it on, and it, we, you know, almost all the stuff is running on CRTs, so it, it feels pretty authentic. We're running a lot of stuff off Raspberry Pis, um, but if you run a Raspberry Pi with composite video on a on a tube TV, it looks it, you really can't tell much difference. I mean, I, I don't think you, I think most people can't tell any difference. Um, I mean, I think an LCD doesn't look that great, but like, um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty nice experience. Uh, really it's, authentic yeah. and different feel. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to make sure we have time for some some questions. Um, uh, if people have questions uh, before we wrap up, uh, do people have questions for Paul? I can keep asking questions, just to be clear. But if you guys have questions, raise your hands. Um, 
Uh, one thing I, I was going to ask while folks are thinking uh, is, you know, um, uh, the, the students here at USC Games who are studying game design and development are they're encouraged to, to seek out inspiration for their games very widely. And I'm actually often uh, encouraging my students to go out to, to theater, to galleries, or alternative experiences to broaden their kind of creative palette. Um, and so what important ideas do you think that uh, our students could take away from this, this kind of prehistory uh, of, of today's art games? that, that they could experience at the, the gallery? Huh, I don't know. That's a, that's a tough question. Um, I don't know. I've been thinking about that. It's like, it's it <laughs> a little hard for it, me it to... It inspires you, obviously, in your work, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, it's, a, it's a little, it's, it is a little hard for me. I've been trying to kind of quantify what, how this, how all this fits into, um, how this kind of fits into like the current state of things, and I mean, I think these ideas. I, I, well, I guess I'm I'm kind of into I'm into these really minimal games. Um, like I feel like this this idea has. I guess yeah, I'm I'm into this kind of. How do you describe what it is? I mean, it's almost a little bit of a punk attitude. I hate yeah. to say this, but no, it's a little I bit of a punk a great... attitude about games. It's like, yeah, doesn't kind of exist. As, I mean, games have. I'm not. I'm not super into the the, the scene that's developed now. Honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to be super negative about it, but there's just. I mean, it's gotten huge. There's all these different areas of games and indie games and stuff, and like a lot of it, I'm just not as into. I, mean, I play games all the time, but I don't. I don't play that many indie games for some reason. I don't know. Like, I like the punk, uh, you know, sort of analogy. I think that's there's something very raw uh, in in these games. Like you know. Jody's, Jody just made this new piece. Like Jody, Jody's made a variety of different stuff, and they're kind of my, they're kind of my favorite. Like they're so, they've done so much stuff, and they're so consistent. I think. I, I think they're. Um, but anyway, they made this new piece that it's tic tac toe, where you play against like five different AIs at once. <laughs> But one of them, like they range in intelligence from really smart to really dumb. <laughs> I, I mean that, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know why I'm bringing. I mean, it, I feel like this kind of quantifies. I, lo I love this idea so much, and I feel like it's really, di it's really different from their hacking stuff. But yeah. it's still kind of the same. It's also it's rendered. It's like very minimalist. It's all black and white, and it's sort of this. And you play at the same time, or I, I haven't actually had a chance to play yeah. this piece. It's like a big installation. I, I don't. I don't. I mean, I've only seen pictures of it. And I don't t totally understand exactly how, how the whole thing works. But I mean, it, has, it sounds it has all really these interesting. That kind of play all at once. Yeah, especially super. since tic tac toe is so, I mean, famously, you know, easy, right? right. So to have AI set at different level of stupidity uh, uh, sounds really interesting, and with the way we are talking about AI these days, um, it's really topical. Um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it sounds fascinating to me. I mean, it, and I mean that's kind of different from a lot of the stuff that's going on. It's like this very minimal kind of yes. focused idea, and I, I really like that. I mean, I guess yeah, I guess that's kind of what I mean. That's kind of what I'm into with this stuff. There is there's a few there's other directions. We I mean, there's other two shows that me and my buddy did. They were a little bit different direction, a little more indie stuff. A little, you know, we had Jason Roar in one of them. But, right. Uh, but anyway, this one is this show is more focused on kind of this minimal, 
kind of slightly, I feel like punk's not maybe quite the right word, but it's, it's, it's good it's enough. It's communicating <laughs> to me, of, uh, and having seen the show, I think it, it's actually quite apt. Okay, cool, yeah. You know? <laughs> um, obviously, you're not talking about the violence of punk rock or yeah, the aggressiveness. Yeah. You're talking about that sort of raw energy yeah. um, and sort of a pushback against... Um, uh, more commercial aspects, right? Yeah. yeah. And also, it's not like a lot of these games are not really about. They're not about beauty in sort of a direct way. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're kind of they're kind of more. You know, kind of just going with the flow <laughs> with yeah. what what appears and stuff like that. Anyway. Yeah. 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 You had a question. Yeah. Um, I look forward to seeing the show. It sounds like uh, all the all the games or pieces that you've chosen have some kind of twist that sets them apart from what people would normally consider a game. So I guess my question is kind of where do you see that line being that separates games from art and do you see signs of the public um, growing to accept games as art more? Yeah. Um, I mean... It it has a lot to do with goal, like having a goal in the game. I think. I mean, there's like, I've read stuff. There's like certain elements, but I think having like kind of moving the goal or making it big or things like that, or or also just like being in like like going for like really long endurance to do certain things, like like desert bus. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's a t it's a tough question. There's a lot of different aspects. I think that you can kind of tune in and out. But you know, like well, one of the shows, I put Katamari Damacy. Which I think is like, I mean, it's it's a game, but to me, when I play that game, it's I mean, it's, it has all the elements, it has the goals in there, but still, it kind of just becomes this activity for me in this way. I don't know. It's it's a tough question. I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of just doing this show to just kind of explore this idea and try to figure it out. Yeah. But I don't totally know. I just realized we did exclude one. We forgot to talk about one piece, which um, is the there's we we included this. Um, it, sorry, it just made me think of this. Um, like we we did this we showed a series of crack intros from the eighties, um, which are um, like when games were pirated and put on bulletin boards in the eighties. Um, uh, the the hackers who would do it would often put these like they would make these elaborate intros with music and um, graphics and kind of showing off various things. They're basically demos. The so demo scene, yeah. Corey Archangel and this. This other uh, artist curated a set of those in 2003, so we we show I have a compilation of those that were showing on a projector. Yeah, and that's another thing that's kind of like, I mean, it's not a game, it's not it, a game. Um, but it's like sort of these artists who are doing sort of adding something onto a game, like so it's sort of a game modification. So anyway, like that that thing is kind of off in this other area that is hard to quantify as well. I mean, in a way, you do a show like this to ask that question. Not necessarily to answer the question, but to a a ask the question and to get other people to ask the question, I would, I would say. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, were there other questions? Yes. Yeah. I'm wondering about the regional focus of the show. Because you mentioned Tetris, which is Soviet. And, um, and then there are, you know, like, like Europe especially uh, had like a lot of interesting amateur stuff in, you know, in the 80s and in the 90s. So I'm wondering like if... You want to go more for like U.S. Uh, focus, or also getting stuff from from Europe? Or it's a mix of you. Like the almost almost all of the the crack intros that I was mm -hmm. just talking about are from Europe. Yeah. Um, Jody's from Europe. 
John Leandro's from Europe. And Fonway's Ashmore's from Canada. I think, yeah, and then Tetris is. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of a mix of stuff, yeah. I would say it's, it's kind of a fair, I mean, the, my gallery's always kind of been that way. It's all been, my network is kind of, partly just because I did shows in Europe and stuff, my network has kind of been there to some degree, so yeah. Um, I, I did, I wanted, I was kind of, there's this, I know didn't write about it in the press release or anything, but I, I wanted to have this, there was this thread of U.S., there's this, this Cold War thread through the mm -hmm. show. The, um, Mike built a shelter, NATO defense, the te including Tetris, and Corey's, Corey's MiG-29, it's a, it's a Soviet, <laughs> Soviet plane. Um, so, yeah, it was, there's sort of this little, I did, I, I wanted to write about it, but I just didn't have time to kind of like form my ideas about it, but I just kind of put it through there. <laughs> this little thread running through there. Yeah, you should take a look at the bounce power. Uh, I have an original copy from the Error somewhere. Around. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I'll, I'll have to dig it out and show it to you. Uh, are there other questions? Yeah, Todd. Um, I guess I mean, you mentioned things a little bit like the CRTs or emulation on Raspberry Pi and stuff. I guess any thoughts or any any interesting stories about trying to, with regards to preservation or recreating a lot of the experiences of any of the pieces as you're trying to get the show? Um, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was mostly just, I mean, the, the I guess the um, getting Tetris working was the most involved because I had to, I wanted to, to get it working with a Cyrillic character set, which was a little challenging. I had to find, I had to find, I had to post on Reddit and get somebody to send me the manual for the terminal I was using, and it took a while. I wrote a Python script to convert um, the old, like whatever uh, terminal code he was using into something that worked with the terminal I had. Um, but most of it's just configuring, like, I mean, I, most of, it, most of it's like configuring RetroPod. <laughs> like I use yeah. Retro. I mean, you can even just download the emulators, but it's always honestly just easier to just install RetroPie and then like pick up the emulator you want. Um, and yeah, I just I think just running it on a CRT is kind of the key thing because it just it looks it looks so authentic. And then you can just buy like for the for Mafonway's Ashmore's Super Mario pieces. I mean, I just have it running on Raspberry Pi with a USB. NAS controller and it, it feels so authentic. It's running on a. We have these nice Sony PPMs that we got for it. It looks it looks really great. I mean, Corey is really particular about stuff, and I'm, I I actually have. I'm oh, sorry about that. I have his is actually faked. I have um, actually some of them are faked. I have the NAS there with the cartridge in it, but I have I've had trouble getting it working. So behind it is a Raspberry Pi, and he he's fine with it. <laughs> But, and Desert Bus is the same way. Like, I bought, Sega CDs are getting pretty expensive. To get, if you want a working one, it's not cheap. So I bought an untested one off of eBay, and um, and it actually works, but it doesn't work very consistently, so. That's the one that doesn't have the sound running, right? Or when I, I was there, it. you fixed it, oh, okay. I fixed it, yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a pain, too. Okay. Um, it, but, um, yeah, um, wait, what was I saying? You're talking about how hard it is to work with the um, authentic part. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. So what I did with the Sega CD. So I set the Sega CD in front of the monitor. I have a real joystick plugged in. The cable goes under it, and then the USB is snaked under it. So you can't. I mean, nobody can tell because it's on. It's like, and you hear the CD running too. It's like it's really authentic. And then it's on a COT, so it just it looks great. It does. But what's really cool? I mean, I I try to do everything on Raspberry Pi because. 
like I use Commodore 64 as a guide because it's about 40 years old as to how hard it's going to be to like deal with something in 40 years from now. Right. So like Commodore 64 is just now starting to get pretty expensive and a little difficult to deal with. Like you have to re replace capacitors and power supplies and stuff like that. So I use that as a guide. But um, Raspberry Pi is about the same amount of units in um, like in you know around as the Commodore does. I mean, right. I think it's up to like 20 million. Uh, oh, right, there's, there's enough of an install base. There's enough people who kind of know how it works. Yeah, you know, and it's... That broker and stuff for it. And it's just a, it's a standard board. It doesn't have any memory on it. So there's not anything that can be configured on it, really. Mm -hmm. Everything runs off the SD card. So once you get it set up, you just archive that SD card and then... You know, it's it's easy to replace. Even in, like you just buy one off eBay in forty years and plug that, burn the SD card and plug it in. Okay. So that's been that's kind of my strategy, and I do with I do with everything. Like I think I, I may have some of my old cassette tapes that I use for the Commodore sixty four. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that tape drive. Right. It's one of my like earliest memories of trying to code and having that tape drive just go. Yeah, it's really slow. slow as well. <laughs> yeah. And kind of on that other thing, I, I picked up a, a cassette player, and I mean, they stopped making cassettes, and I had to go to a, a place in, in Hollywood that had like a stack of the left, and I grabbed a bunch of them. Oh, wow. <laughs> kind of because, because I mean, from the other direction, trying to archive things. Right. But then you make a you know, very good point about the, about the pie and kind of how much, yeah, it, through the decades, there might there have a better bet that there be a community at least that knows Around about it. knows how to maintain them to some extent. Sure. And there are also already, there's already some emulators for it as well that have been developed just for people to develop on them. But yeah, they, but, you know, that's, that's a good sign. <laughs> so we are just at time, unless there are burning questions. Um, uh, I think we're going to wrap it up and thank Paul again uh, for coming. Well, and I really appreciate it. And everyone go see the show. So, yeah. <laughs>